At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard, start something priceless. At Scotiabank, we know how important thriving businesses are for the strength of our economy. Our team of experienced advisors across the country can provide you with tailored advice, leading products, and valuable resources to help achieve all your financial goals. We're here for every future. Let's get started today. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash smallbusiness. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday to hear news stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Michael Polak. Michael is Mohawk Bear Clan with ancestry in Tyandinaga on his mother's side and on his father's side, he's Polish. He currently serves on the board of directors at Gloose Cap Ventures. He's the executive director at Picto Landing First Nation. He's president of Oguequan Enterprises and he's co-founder of Starberry Drink Company. Michael's a person of principles, passionate about solving problems, innovation, design, and traditional teachings. Persistently curious, I like that, Michael enjoys attempting to understand the mechanics of human-made systems and how to align them better with nature-made systems. Michael, welcome to the show. Greetings and good day. Thank you for having me. And how are you doing? Where, where, where does this call find you today? I'm currently in, as the Mi'kmaq refer, Chibuktuk. That's the word for Halifax which is in Mi'kma'ki, which is the Mi'kmaq word for Nova Scotia, or this Atlantic region here, the land. Uh, and land of the Eastern Dawn, I believe is what that translates into. Yeah, and today I would say, uh, if I had to describe how I'm feeling in a, in a, in a word, it would be grateful. Fabulous. Uh, I want to get into all of these new perspectives that you share with people in a minute. But first of all, what's one thing that you hope our listeners, who are all entrepreneurs, are going to take away from this episode? or keep in mind as they listen. Mm. And, I, and I know that uh, you likely have an international audience, but it is the, the Startup Canada podcast. So <clears throat> um, I guess what, what, I'd like, what I'd like people to leave with uh, or walk away, I guess, as Canadians, if you consider yourself to be a Canadian citizen, then uh, by your proximity to the land here, there is a piece of what it means to be Canadian that is inherently indigenous. That the history and the culture of this land doesn't stop at 150 years, uh, the, the, the age of what they say Canada is since its formation. Um, but we have an ancient history and an ancient culture here, and you've been deprived of it 
but you can start exploring this side of your Canadian identity now. And I believe that it's transformative when you do. That's, that's actually mind blowing. I mean, on, on the one hand, um, it sounds very true. Yes. Uh, the indigenous people have been here for millennia. Um, but it's also true that we know so little about them. So I'm looking forward to, to learning from you, but, just apropos what you just said, how would you suggest people who identify as Canadian, how would you suggest they actually um, try and connect with the cultures that yeah. have come before us? Um, so there's a couple, couple easy ways, right? I would say one that's easy is to go to the land. You know, like some people, I try to ask what's your reflection on your relationship with the land? And uh, <clears throat> it's, it's, it, it catches them off guard, right? Because most people don't reflect on that. Most people might may, may maybe have a cottage or something and they enjoy activities that, that interact with the land, but they don't actually spend time and sit in silence and reflect on what the connection is. Uh, that's a great way. Um, but, you know, there's some teachings that we have um, in Mohawk that would say the best way to understand someone that you don't yet or to learn more uh, is to spend time. And today, there's many ways that you can spend time. That would be, uh, you know, going to a community during during a powwow season. Um, and because of all these alternative forms of uh, communication channels, you know, uh, now a lot of our teachings are in recordings. You know, uh, audiobooks, podcasts, um, and, and documentaries. Great, great, um, great content that's being created. Uh, live action and documentary film. And so the short answer is to spend time. Okay, <laughs> we'll go with the short answer. Um, but it, 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 it actually is going to take an effort, but I think it's, uh, it, it's definitely rewarding. Um, I want to get into the work that you're doing at Aguego. But first, let's hear a bit about your background, Michael. How did you first encounter entrepreneurship and how did it enter your life? Oh my goodness. I feel like I've been, uh, I've had the entrepreneurial spirit since as far back as my memory serves me. I remember in grade one, I love grade one entrepreneurs. My first, my, my, <laughs> yeah. Well, it was like my first business negotiation. If I kind of think about, if I, in reflection, I'm thinking about, and, um, and it was with my mom. And uh, I had negotiated that I would get um, like top, top box grades for toys you know and uh and then when i was a little bit older i started i was a little stronger i started shoveling snow for all the neighbors and i didn't just go around sh shoveling snow on like a an ad hoc you know at the time i was uh i was trying to set up contracts like you know here's how much i'll shovel every time don't you know locking down the neighbors and uh <laughs> i was a little older still and where I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, um, we lived right beside what was then called Ivor Wynn Stadium. It's now called Tim Horton Stadium. And, uh, and we lived right next door. And, uh, and I would park cars during all the big events, especially the CFL games, Tiger Cats, Oski Wee Wee. I would park cars and uh, I, mean, I was making pretty good money. I think I was about 13 at the time. And, you know, there was a game almost bi-weekly and we had a long driveway and prime real estate, and I was charging 10 bucks a car at the time, and probably parked 10 or 12 cars. It was great, you know? Um, and, and after that, I remember I, uh, 
I negotiated a gig with one of the neighbors uh, painting their garage. And I probably did a poor job because I remember, I, I think my dad still has this note, but it was just on the back of like a notepad and it was a contract and it was two fifty an hour <laughs> to paint the garage. But uh, that was my first uh, foray into, I think, probably one of my the worst contracts I ever wrote. Um, but then, uh, then even, you know, into high school, right? Like my mom, she was a computer programmer. So we always had the newest computers around before anyone else. And then in high school, I was, uh, I was burning CDs. Like Napster had come out and I was burning CDs and I was selling those out of my locker in high school. And so this kind of compulsion pulling me towards, this, uh, to, towards entrepreneurship um, started at an early age and continued all the way up until now. And describe what you're doing now, because if I do it, I'm going to muck it up. In that bio you read, there was a a few bullet points. Um, So I'll just speak briefly uh, as it relates to Aguego, which is uh, the consultancy that uh, I currently run and operate with my wife, Keisha. And, And that's really a culmination of a lifetime of experience, but really over the last decade working um, in, in the corporate space and working as a business professional in, um, in the commercial market and kind of analyzing where opportunities and invitations were coming. So, you know, I was getting invited to do a lot of a la carte project-based consulting just through my networks, uh, which, you know, I think the important thing to encapsulate here as it relates to Aguego that we do is the moving back and forth between two, two worldviews and two approaches to business and solving problems and relationships and design. And, you know, the, what I found was there was a unique interest and even demand in this ability it's really enhanced over the last three to five years as reconciliation has become a a more mainstream popular theme and and topic and um, objective for companies then aguego and our team's unique set of skills have become uh, increasingly in demand as people try to figure out how to reconcile the differences uh, between perspectives and approaches to business. And when you say people, um, are you primarily meaning sort of the, the broad, the, the broader business community, the let's lump it all and say the white business community, or are you talking about mainly from the indigenous community? The white business community is where I like to focus uh, a lot of attention. Um, but we do do work in indigenous communities. And, and as you noted, some of my current responsibilities in terms of my um, primary employment uh, through that uh, executive director role is, is really uh, leveraging some of these skills. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of people have um, a great experience in one area, but not many have an experience understanding both, right? So for example, in our communities, in indigenous communities, there's usually been uh, a non-Indigenous business leader or an Indigenous business leader, but never the, the combination uh, like myself 
not just in the mixed ancestry, but actually in the experiences. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the experience in the business world, but also experience um, spending time and um, understanding what it's like to be in, in a First Nation community, what some of the challenges and opportunities are, some of the unique um, governance structures and um, the unique legal relationship with the crown. Like these things are all only partially understood on each side. And there's a, a very uh, small set of, uh, I guess, unicorn type individuals that, that are able to kind of bridge the gap between both of those worlds. Right. And that and that's so interesting because when we think of the classic um, mixed race person, it, we may think that their inheritance is confusion about who they are and wondering where they fit in. But um, you found that the, this is a role that, that, that you can play in bridging the cultures for, for, for both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. So let's get down to brass tacks to help people understand what it is you do. Can you talk about a couple of the projects you've been involved with through Aguego? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it is a broad spectrum, right? Uh, so I guess I'll, I'll start with that. Um, you know, the, the greatest demand seems to exist around this diversity, equity, inclusion, and reconciliation space, right? So there's really kind of three three areas that we would focus. Um, you know, I'll kind of break it down like this. Uh, we would say like storytelling, um, gathering minds, and truth sharing. And those are just our own ways of uh, kind of indigenizing, you know, another organization might label those something differently, but, um, you know, gathering minds or I'll, I guess I'll start st- storytelling is really about, you know, I guess simple way for people to understand it is our version of like public speaking. Um, you know, so those type of engagements where, you know, we're really speaking to large groups and we're really trying to educate the audience, um, in an attempt to help create alignment of the minds on a particular point of interest. And if it's in relation to diversity, equity, inclusion, and reconciliation, we're trying to help articulate and connect what uh, a company and organization is already doing that may borrow inspiration from indigenous teachings and principles so that people understand like, oh, there's some of these things we're, we're already doing, right? It's not like uh, we have to actually start to, to do a whole new project. We're already doing them. We just need to understand how we're aligned in how we do them or how one perspective may add value or lend itself to advancing what we're doing. Like a great example of this would be something like women in leadership, right? Like the Mohawk community is matriarchal. The Haudenosaunee uh, Confederacy is, is a matriarchal community, as many indigenous communities are. But for the business world, the um, you know, this is a relatively new mainstream idea, right? It's like you know, Harvard Business Review says women make better leaders, right? But our community has been led by women for 2000, for millennia, right? For thousands of years. And and so we just kind of start to draw parallels like that and connect dots for people to understand there's a lot of stuff that you're doing that that um, is rooted in indigenous worldviews and values. And then we build upon that. And in, in that, our goal would be to educate or help 
uh, move people forward in, in a more um, expedited way towards their goals of what commitments they made, maybe towards UNDRIP or um, Call to Action 92, Truth and Reconciliation. Um, so yeah, the, the next thing that we would do is, is um, we call gathering minds. And this is really agile teams type of work, like design sprints, where we're bringing together a specific team for a specific um, objective. Um, so for example, you know, communication team wants to work through a problem, um, you know, then we would assemble a team, bring members from ours and take them through this guided process um, through a design sprint or rapid decision-making sprint or um, uh, problem framing activities. And, uh, you know, it's, it's more deep work and it usually requires a commitment to a specified amount of time, you know, really a minimum of five days um, of this focused teamwork. And, and that's, that's more of the design and innovation um, type work that we would engage in is really designing uh, product solutions or processes, um, whether it be kind of little I incremental improvements and innovations or, or big I creating something net new. Um, gathering minds is that that deep work. And then truth sharing, that is, um, I guess the best way to conceptualize that would be something like uh, executive leadership coaching. Uh, but truth sharing is really where we're spending time with those individuals and we're trying to help to advance them um, further along their journey into whatever it is that their goal is um, for their career or professional responsibility. And obviously today there's some, you know, leadership themes that um, have evolved and emerged, you know, like empathetic leadership, um, authenticity, vulnerability. Um, and then there's these broader themes that sit in the global corporate ecosystem around um, commitments to uh, the environment, right? And society and governance. And those three areas are areas that indigenous communities are what I would say, masters of their domain, experts and specialists. And the knowledge that sits there is not widely known. Um, and so we, we through this one-to-one, -one, we introduce teachings and concepts and principles that help enhance leaders as they have to face a lot of the difficult challenges and decisions decisions that they need to make um, uh, with information that, that they've likely never heard before. So there's a lot of indigenous consulting firms that exist in the world. And there's a lot of consulting firms that exist in the world. I think where we focus, uh, what differentiates us in that sphere around uh, the consulting services is around the design principles that we've created uh, which no one else uses, and um, where a lot of our knowledge is rooted. And so on the indigenous side, you know, you can say indigenous, we're indigenous, so we do indigenous stuff, right? But, uh, but for me, a lot of our knowledge and approach is rooted in Haudenosaunee teachings, which are treasures, like <clears throat> you can't access those, right? So if you can't access them, they're very hard for you to build into some of the solutions that you're trying to design. Um, and so a lot of this is rooted in what we would say like teachings and themes from Guyana Rangoa, which is a theme around um, the original agreements, these first principle agreements that exist between humanity and the rest of the natural world. And um, 
and, and that would be, I think, an element of our uniqueness. I love the idea that uh, a post that you put on Instagram uh, talking about your services, you said, when you hire us, we won't fit into the way you do things. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's brilliant. I, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a positioning device. You're, you're, <laughs> you're giving some idea of how you work. And you're also, it's also a filter, right? If, if that <laughs> you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. You, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And that, that's fully the intention of that. And, and just tell me a little bit about what that looks like when you say we won't fit into the way you do things. Is that something that a company that a, a, that a client has to be sort of courageous about hiring you? <laughs> Understanding that? Yeah, your, Rick, your intuition is spot on. Uh, so the intention of that post was a, a bit of a filter. And uh, we do think that um, organizations that work with us need to be courageous. And what we're really trying to, we've done work across the spectrum from, you know, nice fun stuff to, you know, that, that deep, that deep work. But what we find is the tendency to want to do something because it's what's trendy today, instead of really trying to um, find within uh, a, a structure, an organizational structure, or a system where the the root cause of a of a pain point is or a problem, and then once we find that, we can start to uh, explore ideas, ideate, and find solutions. And so, yeah, from a client's perspective, working with us can be uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable. It's uh, it's thought provoking. It can be challenging, and it also is also enriching specifically on the diversity, equity, inclusion, and the reconciliation side of the work, right? There is where it gets more uncomfortable because for myself, it would, given I want to do things that energize me and that I feel good about. And, we're, and my team as well, Keisha and I and, and um, our broader team are not as interested in doing performative work, performative measures or PR type situations, right? We like to get into the DNA of a company. We want to understand the mindset um, of the board, of the executive leadership, the core vision, the values, the principles of a company that define what it is that they do and try to understand where they are in that enterprise journey um, and how they view the world, right? And get closer to what it is that the company is, what is the truth about the company? Like, what is the truth and what do you want the truth to be, right? And that enables us to get, helps enable us uh, when we find partners or uh, clients that are interested in doing that, right? It enables us to start to get more to the, to the root of what it is that they're trying to solve for. And so, you know, I kind of was talking about that root. It's like, if we had a hundred hours with a client, we'd probably spend 80 hours focused on ensuring that we're, we're focused on the right problem before we even started trying to go to a solution. Um, and so I'll give you a common example of that, which is um, one of the most common problems that we see in the, in the in corporate Canada or the corporate space um, is R&R, not rest and relaxation, but uh, recruiting and retaining diverse talent, right? And most organizations tend to view this in a very kind of siloed way or compartmentalized. It's like, okay, we need, we need to recruit 
and retain diverse talent. So let's create a diversity program that uh, is good for intake, right? And then diverse groups will enter our program, problem solved, right? And that's a really good um, kind of simple approach to the problem that uh, is, is commonly used. And on the recruitment side, it usually does pretty good, right? The program will usually have kind of mid-level entry jobs. They'll, they'll, they'll create some, some equity components to it where, you know, you bring people in at a higher level, the pay is better. There's some, you know, they try to embed a little bit of uh, maybe some cultural elements into the programming itself, right? And it kind of feels good at first. You'll get, you know, 25 new people into the company, and um, and then what happens is people leave, right? So that it it fails on the retention side normally is what what we've observed, right? And that's that's because when people come and they enter an, an enterprise, it's a great opportunity. It seems like, kind of feels like there's a big welcoming, but then the reality, the truth of the organization reveals itself, which is typically racist systems, antiquated policies, um, you know, a loneliness where the individuals are by themselves in a department and they're not kind of together in a community. Um, there is no community, right? Like a lot of organizations don't have what's commonly referred to as employee resource groups. Smaller, the, those SMEs, you know, those typically don't have communities established. Yet there's usually no uh, diverse representation at the board level, right? So that people can't see themselves. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is in a short amount of time, less than a year, um, people start to see that it's not what they thought. The program was good, but it, the, the, the organization isn't what they, doesn't align with the program, right? And so we try to take a deeper look at the broader organization, its structure, its culture, its governance, its leadership, and find out how to really create a diverse environment. And so diverse talent's gonna wanna come and work there. You won't need a program, right? But it, you can have a program, but if you create this environment then the people who come into that program are going to stay with your organization for an extended period of time. Yeah. I mean, you, it sounds like you're talking about the difference between a quick fix and a, and a fundamental it, fix, a fundamental re rethink. Exactly. Yep. Uh, that's super. I, I want to get more into your, um, the, the, the tools you bring to this. But first, you mentioned sometimes we do fun things. Tell me about a fun project you worked on. Uh, so this other one that is ongoing and really fun is a, a partnership that's emerged with a boat builder, uh, and they're focused on trying to build uh, an electric an electric fishing vessel. And the goal was to indigenize the design process. So how can we make this boat? Um, align with indigenous principles on design. And so beyond the electric engine, like what else can we do with this? Um, so the sourcing and procurement of materials, um, shapes, can we borrow inspiration from some traditional, uh, like for example, obviously I'm in Nova Scotia, the boat builders in Nova Scotia. And, um, you know, from an innovation perspective, the Mi'kmaq were um, just fantastic marvels at design of the ocean canoe. Extremely lightweight, can carry heavy loads, um, seaworthy, good in rough water, right? And so how do we incorporate elements of, of that design into this, uh, this boat we're building? Because when you build an electric vessel, um, one unique characteristic is that um, in order to get range, 
the range required for travel, you have to have uh, really heavy batteries. The battery density, the technology isn't uh, quite optimized yet for the ocean. Um, and so, Absolutely. you know, how do we, how do we lighten the load and, and how do we, um, how do we think about that, rethink that design? So this is a really cool, fun project that I'm, I'm very excited about. So uh, how far are you along on this, on, on this project? Uh, well, the, the hull for this boat is built, uh, and it's, it's patented now, patented IP. And, um, and now we're around trying to kind of design. So there's four designs that exist right now. There's, um, uh, a river, an electric river canoe for tourists. Uh, so river tourism, indigenous tourism. Uh, there's a, a what's we're calling a moderate livelihood fishing vessel. And that's a unique, moderate livelihood is a unique fishery that exists for the Mi'kmaq community here in the region that's being established or, or sort of reestablished. Um, and there's a electric kind of harbor taxi and there's an ocean research and patrol vessel. Um, so there's, there's four designs, but the first one is this uh, moderate livelihood fishing vessel. And that one has this patented hull. It's halfway built. It's uh, built with sustainable, light, extremely lightweight, soft wood lumber. Um, and it's really cool. And so we're finalizing some of the other kind of design elements in terms of like, how else can we spice this thing up? And here's an Aguego here's an principle, which is really like holistic, holistic design. So creation center design, which I mentioned earlier as a differentiator, uh, would be this thing where we, <clears throat> The boat builder would typically look at how do we design things the best for the human, right? So user-centered design or human-centered design is, is like the, the standard that exists in the world. How do we close our, close our eyes and imagine what the user wants and, and how do we optimize for them and go out and do the research and get feedback and try to build that? And then in creation-centered design, what we do is we close our eyes and we try to think, how do we design a product that is built and good for everything that exists in creation, right? So how's the boat good for the water? How is it good for uh, the forest? You know, how is it good for the marine life and that marine ecosystem? Yeah, how's it good for the user too, the human side of it? Um, but how is it good for all those other elements that are, um, that have a connection to the thing that it is that we're building? And try to um, think through that that more broad lens. It's, it's again, it's, it's a harder process. It's more costlier. I, I just I, I, an example of what how you get into the weeds with that is this process to build this lightweight wood hull, right? The lightweight, the wood is important. You can take this, make a plug, and make like a fiberglass hull, but it's a little bit heavier, a little bit less durable, and fiberglass is not as sustainable. But even the traditional wood hull. It's built with an epoxy base, and the resin epoxy that's used, um, it's, it's one of the primary ingredients is oil, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, and when you do that, when you apply that, immediately when you apply, apply that type of epoxy to wood, it's, it's also commonly used in wind turbine blades. Um, it makes it uh, non-biodegradable. So now you have this, you're taking a sustainable product that's biodegradable, and you're making it not biodegradable. This is another problem that exists with these green energy projects with wind farms. There's only one company in the world that makes wind turbine blades that are recyclable. It's, it's Siemens. 
and they're more expensive, so people don't buy them. So, you know, at the end of 10-year life cycle with those wind turbine blades, they end up in landfills. And right now, there's a lot of those blades in landfills. And so we didn't want that with the hull of this boat. Like at the end of this life cycle, what, what do we do? So we, had to, we went out and we found, uh, uh, through procurement initiatives, we found a supplier that makes a biodegradable epoxy, which doesn't compromise the, the, the integrity or the strength of what we're building. It's a little bit more expensive, but it enables the hull to be um, recycled in, in a way that kind of aligns with some of our principles on design, that it's still good um, for the environment. Just one example of the whole process. You can see how you can get into the weeds if you apply that creation-centered lens. I can also see the benefits. Um, and creation-centered design, does that come directly out of Indigenous cultures and Indigenous Absolutely. Because it strikes me that business leaders are just only now really starting to grapple with the implications of the circular economy. The fact that they... yeah are increasingly going to be expected to take responsibility for their products after their useful life cycle has ended. And of course, no one wants to do that, but some companies, um, you know, are already, um, you know, taking responsibility and acknowledging this. And others, of course, are naturally um, hiding their, their head under the blankets, hoping no one right. will see them. Um, but you're telling me that this is an, I guess this is a great example of one of those things where we're finally catching up to the thinking that our ancestors, our first peoples had in this country. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's like, you know, engineering first principles, right? It's like, what is the starting point? What is the foundation that we're building all of our design off of? And a lot of mature companies, large uh, enterprise organizations, they already have that foundation built, right? And in many cases, it's what um, enables them to continue su su success, right? It's like, so there's this confusion around what do we protect that enables us to continue to exist as a, as a, as a corporation? And how do we adjust? And what do we need to adjust? What do we need to kind of evolve? And you can, so a lot of these mature companies are, as you mentioned, kind of retroactively going back and being like, all right, how do we, how do we, do sustainability better? How do we become more diverse, right? But for us, uh, when we kind of enter a, uh, a partnership or a project, in this case, this is more project-based, obviously, um, but I can see the thought process and the design process rubbing off on the principles, like the owners of the boat building company and the way they think about doing business, how the way they think about designing some of their other products that aren't uh, with this kind of indigenous focus. And that's the idea. It's like, you want to bring us in for an indigenous thing, initiative or uh, diversity thing that you want to try to uh, resolve. We'll come in and try to do that. And the hope is that in the introduction to some of these concepts and worldviews, um, design principles, that, that it's, it becomes uh, so contagious that it then kind of makes its way into the broader culture of the company. Yeah, I think that, you know, the whole design thinking revolution of, 30 years ago. I'm not sure it's complete yet. I, it's, it's, it's hard for business to learn new things. just like it's hard for all of us to learn new things. But uh, man, you're really on the right track. Help me understand one more of the tools that you use, which you, you mentioned earlier, the two-eye seeing approach. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, this this uh, thought leadership was really coined by a Mi'kmaq elder named um, Elder Albert Marshall. His intention for creating two-eyed seeing was actually to encourage uh, future generations of mixed ancestry to not be disillusioned by by the mixed ancestry. To, to, to you know, it was a it was a mechanism that he used to help um, connect people to their identities and build the confidence in their identity, right? But what it is, he, he kind of defined it with some principles. And there's different versions of this. I use two-eyed seeing because it's the, it's, it's that, that term has been, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in Mi'kma'ki, so, uh, you know, I want to honor that, that he kind of uh, brought this forward. And he brought this forward and, and kind of um, popularized it in an a- academic way. But this this idea or this concept had also existed in in our culture in different indigenous communities, as well. Like uh, one of my teachers, who's actually uh, Ojibwe, and she was telling me this story, one of these stories about a prophecy of the blue-eyed ones, that our 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 communities knew when the arrival of explorers and settlers that there would be intermingling, and that the the blue-eyed ones would be the ones who helped. Um, create cohesiveness and unity because they could understand both worlds, right? Understand two sides of the spectrum and in that bridge the gap of that misunderstanding or the disconnect. You know, other communities talk about, uh, well, I, I, I travel down the river with one foot in two canoes, right? It's the same kind of general concept that, that we knew that, that this, um, that this would happen. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned something early on and you said, uh, maybe it would, the perception or, and you're very, you were right about this, Rick, is that, you know, mixed ancestry can create turbulence around the understanding of one's identity, right? And that this is a big issue that exists right now as well. Many of the young people that are of mixed ancestry that I mentor struggle with this a lot. Um, but through a connectedness, I knew my grandfather, I know my mother. I was never confused about knowing that I was Mohawk. I always knew, right? I always knew I was Polish and I would travel from one world to the other as, a, as an adolescent. And then as I grew in life, I would go to the res and I would be, you know, in downtown Hamilton. I would, you know, work in a corporation and I would go work on the res. And throughout time, you start to be able to collect this, um, catalog of observations about the way things work, the mechanics on each of those places, what's working, how each side understands one another, some of the elements of where trust can be built or where um, uh, you can see that there will be a lot of uh, turbulence in that way. So I'm I'm loving, I'm loving what I hear. Um, You're talking about just looking at things in stereo, right? And and, and, and stereo is not 360 degrees. It's not seeing every part of a thing, but it's acknowledging that, that a thing is more than one yes. thing. <laughs> I'm yes. really articulate <laughs> this hour of the day. Um, and, 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 and that's exciting because so many people go through life thinking that things are only one thing, that a problem is just this, that a situation can't be changed, that the and and just having that 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 stereo vision, that foot in two camps, the foot in two canoes, um, helps realize no, there's more approaches, more solutions. Let's get creative. Let's think about this. There's there, there's a way through. 
So I, yeah, I find that really appealing mm-hmm. and really exciting. Tell me a little bit about where you think you're going. It sounds to me like the uh, solutions that you're bringing, the approaches that you're bringing to, to business problems, business problems will always be with us. It sounds like you've got some solutions that are going to be really useful going forward. How do you see your career and Aguego evolving over the next few years? I, I'm going to continue to seek out partners that are, are bold in their vision of where they want to take their companies and teams. And for me, uh, with Aguego, with the consultancy, it's really about um, finding projects that energize me so that I can, I can deliver the most value from the perspective that, that, our, that myself and our team bring. So, you know, I just like, I like energizing projects that advance society, you know, towards, towards some of these kind of common goals, like, you know, leaving the world in a better place than, than, uh, when I lived in it, it's kind of what I would hope to achieve here with this. And, and I'm, I'm starting to kind of find this, um, like inflection point or convergence is probably a better word. It's like, you know, you, you, in my bio, you shared a few of the responsibilities that uh, that I have, or the commitments I've made with with my work life, and all of them are kind of uh, arriving at this point where they're 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 getting closer and closer together. Like the work I'm doing through Aguego translates into the work I do in the community at Picto Landing, and uh, and it connects to Starberry, the beverage company it connects to the work that uh we do in in community and, and as i serve on uh on the board at glue like it's all interconnected um in the work and and i think that is going to really amplify the ability to scale some of these solutions like when we find a good solution for um uh marine vessels right then it's like how can we bring that to all the communities that we work in and how can we expand that kind of globally and, and this as everything gets more honed in on one kind of centralized point it's like that uh creation of the universe uh kind of theory where it's like you know it gets down to such a point that's so dense then can it, how can we expand it expand it back out uh into the world right and and so you know my life has has brought me to this point where everything is converging. And I feel really, really optimistic and positive about that. The Guego will seek out energizing projects and continue to try to evolve and, and iterate and develop new design frameworks as well uh, as we experience new and, and diverse projects. And, um, and ideally, I see a world, uh, my, you know, corporate Canada, I think I'd like to see, I see a place where indigenous principles and values and culture are in every aspect of every industry, in every company's, um, uh, you know, business vision and mission statement. That there are, there are elements of indigeneity in in that in, in every organization in every business line, and uh, you know that's a, that's the grandest ambition that I could think of. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing, and uh, you know the way you've ex- described it, there's a good reason why we should get this uh, convergence, and the sooner the better, I say. 
Michael, final question. Any advice for other entrepreneurs out there, entrepreneurs who are trying to change the system, entrepreneurs who are trying to, to, to let it be known, hey, I think I've got something for you here. Okay. I'm going to leave these words for entrepreneurs. And they, you know, the audience, you can interpret them and take from it what you need. But these are, I'll just share these words, which are not my own uh, teachings from some Mohawk teachers, right? So, uh, Sylvia Miracle, she would say something like this, uh, stories, stories are, are lessons. And in our lessons, you start to, when you learn from those lessons leads to practice. And when you're practicing something, you're engaging in ceremony, right? And when you're engaging in ceremony and you're practicing a culture, then this is uh, inevitably will lead to everyday good living. And so whatever it is you're doing from an entrepreneurial sense, right? Try to focus on Ganagorio, having a good mind and and living good every day, right? We don't want to just like live good for, a, for one moment. How do we live good every day? And so stories lead to the lesson. The lesson leads to the practice and ceremony and the ceremony leads to everyday good living. That's one. And the other is this word, dahonde. Dahonde means we all have our own path, right? So start with strong foundations. Uh, if a tree's going to grow, it has to have strong roots, right? Um, and view things to the best of your ability through the lens of the natural world. And so we would say in Mohawk, um, follow the path that creation shows you. It's just amazing when you think about it that uh, we've come a long way in business and in Western philosophy and thought. And we're just now achieving this synthesis with the wisdom that the indigenous people of Canada had thousands I know. of years ago. <laughs> As you say, we all have our own path. It's been, it's been a circuitous path, but I'm, fine. I'm glad we're getting here. I have been talking with uh, Michael Pollack, and he's one of the partners with his wife, Keisha, in Aguego. And that's spelled, if you want to go to their website, dot. CA. Uh, thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate your opening my eyes to this potential, to the, these different ways of thinking. And I wish you luck in, uh, in, in, in spreading that message uh, all across the country. Thank you for this uh, delightful dialogue. Great way to start the day. Um, I love it. You've, you've, uh, you've challenged me to, to think about and reflect on some of these things that we're doing. And, and uh, I'm grateful for that. And so I'll say, uh, as we say, thank you in Mohawk, Yawen, Yawen, uh, for the time that we got to spend together today. Rick, this was cool. As we say in Toronto, merci beaucoup. <laughs> thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles, and it's made possible by the support of MasterCard and Scotiabank. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence.